Hello and welcome to the Wish You New podcast. I'm your host, Karen Bortvet. Today's episode, we are going to be talking about domestic violence. October that is coming to a close was Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so I really wanted to do something to contribute to that conversation. After I graduated from college, I worked with survivors of domestic violence for a year, and it was a very transformational experience for me, and I learned a lot, which I think that we should all have a deeper understanding of. So that's where the motivation for this interview came from. Like I said, this interview will be focused on talking about domestic violence. While we will not be talking about anything too specific in terms of physical or sexual abuse, we are talking about emotional, psychological, financial abuse throughout this episode. We talk about suicide, we talk about substance abuse, we talk about control. So if any of those could be a trigger for you, if you yourself have survived domestic violence, please be aware that that is the content of this episode, or if you're listening with mixed audiences, we do not want to re-traumatize or traumatize anybody with our episodes, so please just be aware of that. If you are listening and you currently find yourself in a domestic violence situation and are ready to leave, of course, if you're in immediate danger, please call 911 and seek help. If you are in a domestic violence situation and trying to figure out what your next steps could be, a couple of good resources that are mentioned in the podcast, but we will mention now as well, are dialing 211. That will give you all the domestic violence resources in your area. Another option is the National Hotline for Domestic Violence, which is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Again, if you're in a domestic violence situation and looking for resources, those would be the best places to go. For everybody else who is looking to raise your awareness, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Christina, to our podcast. I want to thank you very much for taking the time from your day to come on and also for your willingness to share something that is so personal to you, talking about your experience with domestic violence and your work as an advocate in that field. The very first question we have for you is to start at the beginning, give us some context. Can you tell us your story and explain a little bit about your experience with domestic violence? My experience and story with domestic violence, its uh, there's so many components to it. I think everyone always likes to know the details of the abuse, maybe the why someone stayed. It was financial and emotional, and it was often in public. That was the best way to control someone like me who's very outspoken and opinionated is by yelling at them in public. And no one would say anything ever. But it would be something simple. It's like, hey, we need to be someplace in the next five minutes. Can we hurry up? And because I rushed him, the I would have to be yelled at. And it would be things like, God, you're so stupid. Or, you know, there would be swear words in there as well. Any name that he knew that would just beat me down so I wouldn't pester him again. And why would someone, again, that's supposed to care about me, we married be hurtful towards me well her people hurt people and so my partner did sustain quite a bit of abuse at a young age and had a lot of substance use issues i knew this going into the relationship but he was a longtime friend of the family so you think you know as the helper me i can change them so i got into this relationship and 
cared about me a lot, but I'm a firm believer if you don't love yourself fully, you can't truly love someone else. And so because my partner never dealt with their past trauma, they needed a lot of control in their life. And and sometimes with trauma, people control that through substance use. Others like to watch television, they disappear into their work, right? Some people shop, some people use substances. And in this situation, it was prescription pills and alcohol, and I would work two jobs. I was a crisis line supervisor as well as a 911 dispatcher, and I would have to pay all the bills. And we lived on the East Coast, and it was on the beach, so we had a very lavish lifestyle for that area and I had to keep up with that so I was working the two jobs while this and my partner did not and I would have to pay for prescriptions so I'd work a lot and all our money would go to that and eventually you stop paying your bills and the depression gets you the struggle the anxiety the abuse so I was like all right I'm going to try coping with pills myself and I started that descent any type of prescription pill and even moved to utilizing fentanyl patches, which is a very strong adhesive opiate. And I almost died from using it. If it wasn't for my dog waking me up repeatedly, I would have fallen asleep and never woke up. I'm pretty sure of this just because of the amount of opiates I was using. And I just started throwing up. And so while I was throwing up, my dog's there in my face and I just feel him I'm going to sound so weird, but it's going to be like, why are you doing this to yourself? Come on, get it together. I was very close with my dog. He's a boxer, Apollo, and he's my best friend. And so from that point on, I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I started a private hidden savings and saved up 10000 and drove across the country. Freed myself not only from addiction, but also an abusive partner who I spent seven years of my life miserable with because I thought I could change him or help him. Or when you love someone, you're there no matter what. And when you're in that and you have that mind frame and you also grow up in a family that doesn't really believe in divorce or there's a shame around it, you put up with things, right? Because you're taught, well, you're supposed to love them unconditionally even though they don't love themselves. It's important for me to share that part of my story today because I, that's where my passion is. It's why I got into being starting on call where I currently work and working up to director now is because I wanted someplace I would go because I was working very professional jobs. I was really worried that if I sought help, the judgment that followed. So with all that, it came to me wanting to create a place and also be a survivor, someone who's in recovery, as well as an advocate, so that the judgment ends. Substance use is a coping mechanism, and we need to support individuals through that process in a safe way so that I would have gone and called and reached out for, for help. Um, I did try once and called, but they just were going over so many rules, and then they started talking about drug tests, and that you lose your space, fuse, and it scared me. So I was like, I'll just go on the road and drive, and I will get clean in a tent in the woods so that I can do it on my terms and not have the paper follow me, which is ironic because now I'm talking about it on a podcast, but 
my journey is everything to me because it's where my true passion and emotional intelligence has come from to be able to help people the way I do today. We have barely started this interview and I'm already very impressed with all you have worked through in your journey and the grit that you have to have been able to get through that. I want to stick with your story for a little while and ask some questions on that. Somebody, one of our listeners, had asked specifically, how did you know that a line had been crossed and what you were experiencing was abuse? It came down to just when, like, you'd steal money from me and, you know, always apologize and say, sorry. It was the constant, I'm sorry. So it got to a point where I would be like, okay, I'm going to break this down and make this very simple. Like, just make good choices and I will not leave. And the last straw was really the second DUI getting getting arrested and just calling me at the police department to help him during work. And I was on duty and talking to a police officer who also talked to my sergeant on duty and then that humiliating feeling of being exposed. So preemptively to protect myself and the police department because my partner was so erratic, I resigned. And thankfully the police department didn't really ask me to or anything but him calling the police department and intoxicated and asking and telling the police department, let alone that I work at another police department and that my wife's a dispatcher to try and get him out of the trouble was just like, I'm done. Like I've worked too hard for my professional identity because that's all I had was my professional identity to let you destroy it on top of encouraging me to do more and more drugs. And so I just, I couldn't, couldn't tolerate it anymore along with the just the verbal degrading abuse that would happen in public and then just having to deal with people seeing you and it's a small community and they continue to see you and so it wasn't just one line it was just I finally I guess had an awakening or your aha moment where I'm either going to die from my addiction or um I'm going to continue to spiral down this path of rescuing someone who doesn't love themselves. And so that was really no line. It was just a combination of everything and kind of, I, I really truly believe that the universe sets a path and lets you know when it's time to move on for something. And I was just finally ready to do it. And I feel like with the individuals I help now, that's kind of how it works. It's either some come and they're not quite ready and they go back, but others, they've done it for 19 years and they're like, I can't do it anymore. And so that's where my story helps them because I did it for seven. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's a matter of cutting them off completely because when you even let them call and talk to you and hear your voice, you hear their voice and they rope you back in because you, you care about them and that guilt sets in. And so that was the big struggle. So, and it wasn't even, when I left from and moved across country, I still, he ended up coming out there too and following me and that created even more issues because then I was trying to help him, not even as a wife or even a friend. I was just like a caregiver at that point. So like I, I left, but then 
the haunting continued, which is what people don't understand in domestic violence. This can happen pretty much all your life. It just takes one phone call, and if you choose to answer that phone, it can rope you right back in with the same person again. So my big thing is I had to, yeah, getting rid of the phones, getting rid of all contacts, and I've been able to do that for some time now, so that helps keep you free, if that makes sense. You mentioned that you were in that relationship for seven years. At what point did you realize that things were not going to get better, that that wasn't an option or a potential outcome for that situation? Probably. So when did I realize it wasn't going to get better? Yeah. You have those feelings. I had the feelings from the beginning, unfortunately. So just because of his past addiction and childhood trauma that he wasn't dealing with and I think being a young woman and wanting that fairy tale princess lifestyle you want to get married you want to have children so for me I guess it was when like I can't bring children into this world I don't want to have a family with you and we even at one point looked into fostering kids together and he acted like he really wanted to do it so I was like okay we'll look into it meanwhile he's drinking and doing large amounts of pills and he just didn't see anything wrong with what how he lived. And so I guess that played a role, too, in just knowing, like, he just doesn't want to get better. I believe in the addiction of disease. I believe in domestic family violence in the fact that you love these people, and that's why we stay and we continue to help them, even though we know it's not good for us. So that's why I really try and educate myself is what I started to do. Wanting to better myself and grow helped me know I was no longer in a healthy relationship. It helped me see that it's not healthy to want to rescue someone from themselves. It has to come from within. And I think that's what sometimes we get caught up in helping someone else so much or especially I was lucky enough I don't have children when you have children and you have to face, I'm going to have to care for these guys all by myself. Stay. You don't know what else is out there, too. Did your growing up or your family experience play a role in the situation where you found yourself? Right. I grew up in a wonderful family on a horse farm. I had a pony growing up. I loved Disney movies. I call it the Disney princess complex. So not so much... And my upbringing did play a role. My parents were very big on waiting till marriage um, to be intimate with someone and um, had a lot of female gender stereotypes that I had to live up to. And I grew up in a house of boys who were, my older brothers are eight years older than me. And I saw them date and how they treated women. And they weren't always the most respectful, I think, The big thing is when you're growing up around older men and you're a young girl watching that a lot, you're watching everything. So you learn that you want to be the prettiest. You learn that you want to be wanted. You learn that you want, I learned that I wanted the white picket fence. I wanted to be married. And so you're focusing on that rather than the person that you're developing that that relationship with and what emotional intelligence is in a relationship. What does that look like? My parents had a very healthy, a fairly healthy relationship. They did fight, but my dad, I wouldn't say they, 
they did have a tendency to be verbally abusive, though, towards each other. And so I think that's where I minimized it at first, too, with my partner is, well, this is what people do when they get angry, they get it out, rather than heart-centered communication. I'm a huge believer of now where when you're talking to your partner or loved one, you stand close and you talk softly, right, and you hear each other rather than yelling and calling each other names, leaving angry. So I think that played a role. And then to touch on the Disney princess complex, for me, I grew up watching Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. My favorite is Beauty and the Beast, which is a wonderful representation of Stockholm Syndrome in the fact, you know, the Beast, like, is holding Beauty captive or Belle captive, and they fall in love. So we have these themes in our lives that we're exposed to as young children but it's changing you know we have Moana now and so but back when I was younger that was huge in my life and I wanted my prince and I just didn't look for the right prince. I'm actually going to jump to a question now that I was going to ask you later but ties in with what you were just saying. How do you think we need to educate future generations so that we can reduce the incidence of domestic violence or eliminate incidents of domestic violence in the future? I think the huge thing is the way we speak to our children is so important. And also paying attention to what they do in their free time. I see a lot of children and moms need breaks. And when the television is there or the computer is there, it's a wonderful break for a mom who is struggling and wants their alone time, wants five minutes themselves or any parents or family. The main thing is is paying attention to what they're watching, right? And I, I feel like we, we're starting to do that as a culture. However, the themes also play out in our daily lives when we talk to one another or just discipline techniques. I, sometimes I feel like that's something we don't pay attention to as a family and the behaviors that we exhibit in front of our children. So I'm huge on being honest with kids. I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of Santa Claus, but unlike Christmas, I think we make a bad habit of lying to our children. Starting that from the beginning creates, well, okay, it's not that bad. They lie to me, you know, people lie sometimes. And then it starts this kind of complacency or we're desensitized to how we're really supposed to treat each other. I don't feel like sometimes, especially when you've endured trauma, that we're always thinking about the trauma we inflict on others as traumatized individuals. I love the phrase, hurt people hurt people. And so if we're not paying attention to caring for ourselves and how we communicate to others, even right down to our kids, when we're frustrated or at our worst, it's going to play out to where you get complacent about the way people talk to you because that's how my parents talk to us, right? My mom used to tell me to shut up. I'm, I'm speaking figuratively. My mom would not, but I would hear my mom cuss, and so I developed a little bit of a potty mouth from that. I'm doing very well right now, though. We appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it, you know, it's, it takes a community. So that's what I really strive to create at the shelter I work at is I want it to be a family. So I'm not only kind, compassionate, which I feel like all shelters bring, but we also have this component of family with one another as advocates too. And so everyone struggles. And I think creating a culture in our shelter where we're open to feedback from each other 
residents we work with are open to feedback too because I'm huge on telling them I'm not here to be an expert in anything. I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself a survivor, someone who can thrive in difficult situations. And I really just want to help those that I work with and the advocates that I facilitate this program with that experts. We're just here to facilitate and help others find their freedom, their autonomy again. And it's really important to do that without the power and control element. And I think that's huge in how we raise our children as well in societies as a whole. But there's a lot of power and control over one another. And it's a natural human thing, but I feel like as humans we're evolving, we just start keeping up with the times. We have all this technology around us, yet we're not emotionally intelligent enough to handle it. So we are spiraling on using our cell phones too much, also watching television all the time. And what are we watching, too? They're reality television shows. I don't watch television at all, so I'm a little biased on this, but I feel like that all plays into programming, how we communicate to each other, how we communicate to our families, the time we spend with our families. I think that's where the crucial component is that's also different from when I was raised. But the television was a huge factor. My dad loves his television. And so perhaps maybe if I had more one-on-one time with him and understanding and even maybe a conversation about what kind of man I should look for, that could have probably potentially changed what I was looking for when I went and started dating. Can you speak a little bit more about the work you do now? What is the population you work with and what is the goal you're trying to achieve there? I work for the Domestic Violence Resource Center and we are located in um, the greater Portland area. And what we work with family violence and intimate partner violence. We provide a home for someone to go to that is safe and they can stay there for 30 to 90 days. The way we bring them in is we do a phone screen and it's a danger assessment. And so what we're trying to find out is, has this person been strangled? When was the last abusive incident? And I don't have the exact individual who created the danger model, but it is a formal model that we utilize across all domestic violence and family violence agencies to gauge the level and danger of abuse. Just owning a gun can increase the chance of homicide up to 500%. So we ask the question, does your partner own a gun? And if they do, okay, that's definitely an element of concern. So we try and find individuals who need a safe place the most when we have an opening. We're fairly secluded, and I'm very big on security and safety, so we're always very careful. Um, We pick the individuals or new residents up at the police department, and we take a very weird route home every single time, and it's always very windy so we can tell if someone's following us. But what I think people don't realize is the level of just anxiety and danger and vicarious trauma we as advocates kind of struggle with because we're constantly in these heightened situations where we're reliving reliving trauma with those that we're serving. So that becomes a struggle. But I'm very proud in the fact that we create a home environment for these individuals to come and just relax and 
find their freedom again. The big thing in the struggle that I relate to the most is the substance use piece. Very hard and they often go together, substance use and domestic violence. And it is a coping mechanism for escape. But it's finding that healthy balance to be able to help them enough where you're not enabling them. And that's where the harm reduction model comes in that we really try to utilize to support individuals in recovery. But sometimes they choose not to recover. And that's where the job gets hard is when it's time to tell someone that they have to move out because they're not being safe. That's the real struggle I find in the work that I do now. You use the terms family violence and intimate partner violence. Can you define those terms for those of us that aren't in the field? Yes. So intimate partner violence would be anyone, someone that would be physically intimate with to distinguish. And then family violence, I'm referring to helping anyone. So children that are being abused. A lot of times you'll see situations where a mom does have older children and they're needing a safe place to stay, but perhaps maybe mom's not ready to leave. It's having that option to help someone to have a free life of violence where, and we're trying to start to broaden that definition because a lot of shelters it will say intimate partner violence only. So say you have someone who's a, you have a grandmother and a mother and they're both being abused by a partner. Some shelters won't take the grandma in and there's always ramifications. It's because of funding. It could be because of concerns with some individuals not being completely honest or misuse of the program. However, the situation that we want to help with, though, is we want to help everyone. It's just sometimes you have those professional restraints or boundaries that make it difficult, but it's trying to find a healthy balance. So when I say family violence, I am referring to the children and the family as whole. A lot of times people don't realize that there's extended family in the home that's also being abused. And sometimes, not all the times, we're not able to help everyone. Something else that I want to ask you to clarify or maybe highlight is we're talking about violence. And I know before I worked in the field with domestic violence automatically thought, physical abuse. I thought bruises. I thought outward signs. I thought black eyes. But there's really a lot more to it than that. You've already spoken about emotional and financial abuse, but if you could just clarify what all that term domestic violence encompasses. Yes. So it it is. It's really important to recognize that there's a variety of types of abuse. There's financial, there's the emotional abuse, there's uh, threats of suicide is a big one where if you leave me, I'll kill myself. That was another way my partner would abuse me. Just those elements of any way, shape, or form that they can control you, they will. We struggle a lot with technology today and the fact that it's very easy to trace someone. So before we bring someone, if they're not technologically savvy, we ask them to pull their battery out of their phone and only put their battery in their phone when they leave our house to run errands and things like that because of safety and the ability for some people to track them. I think a really scary example is we also work our crisis line and one night I received a crisis call from a woman whose partner while she was on the phone with me would hang up, be able from a whole other location, be able to hang up her phone calls and control her phone that way and then proceeded to call us to find out who she was calling. 
the ability to control now has just exploded with technology to be able to follow or stalk someone. So these elements of abuse are expanding with uses of technology and their ability to control someone. One of our listeners actually wrote in and asked specifically about control. He said, how did you see power and control manifest in your relationship? Or maybe we can also extend that to the experiences you've seen of others that you can share. I think the the phone call is a beautiful example of just how technology can play a big role. Control would be even, I keep going to technology, but Facebook or posting pictures or stories or things like that. Like sometimes the partners will say that, oh, my children have been kidnapped. Please help me find them. And so they're putting their the residents' pictures and the children's pictures on there on different websites to try and find where they are. And with one individual, they were reaching out to strangers. And so at the transit centers and things like that, so they were spotted at one time just from getting help from strangers and playing, stating that their children had been taken from them. Another way is when you regain your freedom, sometimes part of that process is wanting to date again. So some, uh, many of the individuals that come want to date or explore their new freedom by meeting new people. So they'll create Tinder accounts or Grindr accounts and will go on and date. Well, their partner will create an account and then find them that way and trick them that way. And in those cases, when there's a restraining order, they can get in trouble for that. And so we can make a report to the <coughs> sheriff's office, and that would be a violation of the restraining order, where sometimes it results in discussion saying, don't do that again, but other times it results in being arrested, which we've seen happen as well. You mentioned restraining orders, which makes me think about the legal system I remember when I worked in the field with physical abuse, that was much easier to document in the legal sense. How has the legal system been keeping up with these new forms of abuse in terms of recognizing and documentation? Uh, it, it definitely makes it harder because like, it creates a whole new set of problems for advocates today to deal with and help problem solve through and think five steps ahead. So now we've got to be talking with new residents about these issues around technology and making sure they understand that there is no real safe way to communicate unless we're just talking over the phone. But I, that, if, unless you're on a landline. And so I've even seen those tracked or recorded. So a lot of it is just trying to keep them informed. And that's our job as advocates. We always have to stay like four, five, six steps ahead in planning. And the court system's been really wonderful at that as well. So as long as we have the phone and some proof to relate that this person's fake Tinder account is a violation of a restraining order and you can link them together, then it would be something the judge or the sheriff's office could intervene. But a lot of times, they don't, there's no way to connect the two. So it's up to the survivor to then get rid of the account. So it makes it difficult for them because they just want to start fresh and start a new life and they're there's this whole new way to get to them. So it's not just email, it's not just cell phone, it's any type of social media. 
which can really wreak havoc or the spreading of rumors across. You know, now it just doesn't stay in small areas. It spans across the whole country if you have family in other country. So we've had to give restraining orders and copies of restraining orders to people on the other side, uh, on the East Coast, because the partner decides to move and they're still getting harassed. It's it's interesting, but the I've full faith in the justice system and how they've really made it so the survivor can be heard. I think the big thing that is a struggle is if the restraining order is contested by the partner, the survivor will have to go to court and see the partner. And that creates another problem because as soon as the partner has a chance to talk to them, they can talk them out of the restraining order and just all you have to say is that I feel safe and the judge will drop it and a lot of times they're saying it not feeling safe but wanting to no longer hurt their partner the struggle another listener asked what does justice and accountability look like for your ex and how does that match what happened in real life I feel like his natural consequence was the perfect one I, I left and I don't really feel like I need legal. Uh, I just wanted to have a very quick divorce and have my name back, and I got both of those. And he lost someone who was very kind, compassionate, and loving, but thankfully I was able to find someone new who is perfect for me, and we are actually getting married this summer. And there is, I hope for healing for my ex-partner, I would like him to find happiness so that he doesn't hurt other people. And I feel like that's what any survivor would want. Some of them do would like to see longer times. I feel I didn't have physical abuse, so without, I feel if maybe there was more physical abuse, perhaps I'd want uh, more justice or, say, jail time. And that's where the problem comes in. Jails and prisons are very crowded. So you don't really see domestic violence offenders being in jail for long periods. It's normally maybe 14 months, and that's for a very violent crime towards a partner. And unfortunately, perhaps maybe that is where the justice system could do better, is hear the survivors more on what they want, because that's not normally always taken into account because of overcrowding. And... There, I feel like there is still this perpetuation that domestic violence is not as severe a crime as someone pulling a gun on a stranger. But you pull a gun on your wife, you probably aren't going to get as much time as the guy who pulls a gun on a stranger. And that's the reality. And I think that's where we could improve. First, congratulations on your upcoming wedding. Thanks. That's also very disappointing to hear that if it's someone you know that you're threatening, it's not taken as seriously or treated in the same way as if you were threatening a stranger as far as the sentencing i feel like if you call the police i feel like the police are going to respond they hear a gun they're going to respond however the court system it's going to take it's going to be a process for that survivor to get as much is the, the kind of justice that they would want and we do see that and they were like, you only got that much time? And he, he strangled this person and put a gun in their mouth and tied them to a chair? Or it, And it, it, that's, I think, the real struggle. So it's around perhaps the sentencing that I would want to see change, as well as maybe how the when the restraining order is contested, creating a way so the survivor doesn't have to see or go to court, because that's where 
the abuse occurs again and, and most often in our situations. You have been using the term survivor. One of the things I always like to ask on the podcast is about vocabulary. In my mind, that's sort of a low-hanging fruit. At a minimum, we can at least be using the right vocabulary around people in certain issues. Yes. Some of the words that come to mind for me are abused woman or abused person. We hear about battered women shelters. We hear victim of domestic violence, survivor of domestic violence. Which of those terms are acceptable to use? Which are maybe more offensive? Or how do they differ from each other? Which do you use in which situations? I know that becomes a struggle because I feel everyone, especially in this process, is in a different place. You know, I know some individuals who like the term victim and victim is also also used legally and I personally like survivor I I've gone through it I've healed I still struggle with it but I've survived and I've thrived because of it other individuals aren't ready for that so they identify with victim I like to use survivor as a motivator too I feel the way you speak can have influence over healing process as well so when I speak to a survivor or a resident in our house, I will refer to it as a survivor. I think another interesting, I'm always huge in just asking people too, what, you know, what do you prefer? But I always prefer survivor and I feel like that's a area where a lot of advocates communicate as well. It's empowering language and I like empowering people. So that's where I come from that. But I think an interesting conversation is also around our partners who have abused us. I don't always like to, when I'm working with a resident or anyone, call their partner, ex-partner, their abuser. I will refer to it at times if I don't have a language for them, but I will ask, how can I refer to them? What is an appropriate way you would feel comfortable in me referring to your partner? And sometimes they say, I want you to say abuser because it helps me remember what he did to other people are really like just call him George you know so it's really based on the per- person and where they are in their in their survivor mode but I feel as someone or anyone who would like to discuss fan- intimate partner violence I think survivors the, the best way to go and I always like the conversation around abuser over partner and I feel like if you're in a situation and you're talking to a friend who's uh, partners abusing them, I think it, to stay close to them, you're going to stay partner. Because if you stay abuser and they go back, then they might not come to you for help anymore because you are referring to them as an abuser. So I try and think that way, but it's kind of complicated. You started speaking about if someone has a friend. That was another question someone asked. What should somebody do if they have a friend? who they think or suspect is in a situation of domestic violence? I think some definite signs would have to be always if you're seeing random marks, right, that the random marks on them or they're canceling appointments on you a lot because they can't come because they don't feel well. If you see they act much differently around their partner than they do when it's just you and them alone, I think is also a huge and so when I say that, you know, when our personalities are not the same around someone we're supposed to be close with and 
uh, with two people we're close with as friends and then a partner, but it changes when the partner comes in the room, maybe more shut down, more reserved. If you see someone looking down a lot in the presence of their partner, I, I see it all the time just out walking around or in public or in a parking lot. And you see the couple yelling at each other. That's the more drastic one. But I think if it's a friend, they're going to they're gonna confide in you. You're going to see things. Maybe the partner, you're at a party, the partner's getting you drunk and kind of jerking, physically jerking their partner around a little bit, grabbing them by the face, things like that. I actually saw that last night when I went home with some friends. And we were all on hyper alert, like, uh-oh, like, this person is definitely abusing this other person. And, and thankfully, security came in and be intervened. So those are the more extreme examples. The subtle ones are the most difficult. But if, if you're a neighbor or if you're a friend and you get that gut feeling, ah, I'm uh, huge on crisis intervention. That is one of my biggest passions in life, and so I'm always huge, and being from New York, I'm always huge about being right out front with it. I worked for 10 years in suicide intervention, and so I would always, the philosophy there is you just come right out and ask them, hey, are you thinking of killing yourself? I'm going to be here for you. The same can go for someone you're concerned about. Hey, I'm really concerned about you, and I noticed that you and, you know, you're coming over with marks on your neck what's going on? I'm here for you. No judgment. And always making sure your demeanor as a friend, if you want to be that approachable person, is to always be non-judgmental. Even if that partner is abusive to that person in front of you, try your hardest to not be overly judgmental in that situation and act calmly so that that person being abused continues to come to you and reach for help because they might not be ready the first time. They probably won't be ready the 10th time when you're over talking to them about it. But that 15th time, they might be ready. That's kind of the commitment you get into when you're going to help someone for, for intimate partner violence is they might not be ready to go yet and you just have to be a supportive entity without traumatizing yourself too much. It's, a, it's, a, it's difficult. And that's why a lot of people will push someone away, right? And be like, if you're not going to leave him, I can't be your friend anymore. I can't see you go through this. But that's when they need you the most. You know, you can be like, I'm concerned for my safety. So you need me. Just call me. But you can always put up boundaries. And I hate that, that term, boundaries. But I just like to simplify as what's not okay. And we can have that with friendships. We can have that in our workplace. And still be kind, caring, and compassionate. And be able to help someone in crisis. That's my dream. I just want to train everybody in the planet on crisis intervention so we can have the most emotionally intelligent population we've ever seen. So that's why I'm so passionate about the work I do. I think those are great resources for if someone has a friend. Another listener had asked a similar question about friends, but also community. You mentioned if you see things out in public, what would your advice be for someone who witnesses something out in the community or out in public? What do you do? How do you get involved? What's appropriate? How do you help if you think a domestic violence situation exists or is occurring? All right. The first thing I always like to focus on is, okay, because I don't always do this for, for myself because I love crisis. I've worked with a lot of different populations and have put myself in some interesting 
dangerous situations uh, because I'm passionate about crisis. However, for someone who is not used and has that tolerance level for extreme crisis situations, you always have to be like, all right, am I going to be safe if I go in there and tell this guy in the parking lot who's screaming at his partner to get in the vehicle, is that going to be a safe choice for me to go and intervene? Probably not. Situations, unfortunately, uh, can result in deadly matters for someone who tries to intervene. So doing it the safest way. I'm always firm, a believer on take down the license plate, take a picture of the vehicle very quietly and call the police if it's that escalated. If it's a situation where, you know, you feel like that person drove off and left her there, you can always have those resources where crisis hotline that you can give them and, and or some resources to give that individual who is left behind that needs now maybe a safe place and a ride somewhere. I wouldn't always suggest them putting yourself out there too much to get a ride. If they can find a shelter, I'm always a fan of a lift. But keeping yourself safe and what you're willing to do. So you have to kind of look at yourself and be like, okay, what am I willing to do if if I see a situation? Will I stay with them and help them find resources? It's a struggle. Sources and finding a shelter for someone at night is not easy. It's very difficult to get into a shelter immediately. Uh, It normally takes 24 hours at very lucky minimum to maybe a week to three months. And so some people live in their vehicles. Some people are couch surfing with friends so maybe it's just being that couch for a little while find what you're willing to do to help someone because there's no defined model also get on and research domestic violence and safety planning so if you do have a friend you help them safety plan but know your resources that's a simple way to do it know a domestic violence crisis line know a few shelters and be ready to give them out if you see someone struggling But I'm always a firm believer on if you're not well situated to deal with like a a crisis like that because they are violent, you want to do so with as much distance as possible. Whereas like if I see a situation, I kind of want to like jump in and defuse it. And is that the best answer? Not all the time, no, because you can get hurt. And that's the main thing. So think of your safety first. Have some resources on hand and be ready to take down a license plate and call the police. And that that could be a simple way to intervene or at least provide some sort of safety for someone. I'm definitely going to ask you for a list of resources at some point during the show. So we can put those in the show notes and put them at the beginning of the end of the show so people know where to go. But I want to go in a slightly different direction. I've heard folks before say things regarding someone in domestic violence about, oh, they got themselves into that situation, or they should have known better, or things like that that are somewhat hurtful. What would your response be to somebody who makes those statements or holds those perspectives? How do you work with that? I don't know if there is a statement that I have that I could work with someone on that. Unfortunately, you know, I kind of, when someone makes statements like that, I kind of broach at that point if it's even worth having a conversation because it might uh, not get through, but um, in an attempt to try to help build emotional intelligence in all of us, we all have struggles in life. Just some of we've created this hierarchy of what problems are okay to have, from like addiction to television, addiction to food. But when you have an addiction to a substance, you know you're put in a a box. 
you're also with domestic violence, sometimes people will put you in a box. I try and educate people on things. There is no box. We're all trying to survive. When you are traumatized and your brain is traumatized, you look for structure in unhealthy ways or any way you can get it. And you know that even though you're going to be screamed at all night long and have the blankets ripped off you and not be allowed to sleep, that's another way we're often controlled as survivors with partners. You also know that this person's paying the bills essentially or provides some sort of emotional stability for you even though it is extremely abusive or the unknown. We all want structure and even though it's not healthy structure, it doesn't mean that it's it's wrong. We put a lot of black and white dichotomy on lifestyles. So that's why I say it's going to be very difficult to change that person's mind. That's why I'm speaking out. And I think the more people who speak out, especially in professional environments, to show that we all have struggles in life, we need to be willing to talk about them to help others heal. And judgment is not going to help any of that. They're I know a lot of people have this mentality of we just got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's like an old gypsy type terminology. But, you know, it's just not an option anymore. I have someone come into shelter and you do not have housing options that are affordable unless you live communally, right? You live with multiple people. And I've done communal living. I can't do it. I cannot do it. So I understand why people stay in the situations they do for stability like well at least I have a house or at least I might be living in my car but at least it's mine so passing judgment on someone not leaving or the lifestyle someone has isn't going to help anyone and the reason in the beginning is the person is having these judgmental issues is ego right because they can't them or the inability for empathy I think is another interesting way of looking at it that we just we need to put ourselves in other people's shoes and when it comes to domestic violence and trying to leave it's a very complicated process and until you're knee-deep in it it's hard to really make someone understand the struggle behind it but we're humans we get complacent we get used to a structure or you find a coping mechanism that just numbs you and you one year turns into two years turns into seven like it did for me or 19 for other people but it's just a process and there's no simple way to explain it to make people understand that no one wants a life like that it's just how the cards unfolded is there a beautiful way that we can stop all intimate partner violence from occurring I don't know. I think if we just continue to try and build ourselves up as humans and build capacity for emotional intelligence, we can get to a place where we're having healthier interactions with individuals. Just with, you know, we all struggle with microaggressions or passive aggressive behavior, uh, just with driving. You know, we all turn into toddlers while driving and we're angry and we need to get where we're going really quickly. You know, that all stems in a cultural habit that we've created that anger is okay, experiencing hardship and, and, and some sort of failure in a way of substance use or staying with someone that might not have been the best choice for either of you creates this hierarchy within our society that people are less than. And that's what's really frustrating for me. That's why I really want to tell my stories because I have done it all, I've survived it all, 
and I will not stand by and let anyone put someone down, let alone, like, I would like to, to have someone tell me directly that, and I've gotten that treatment as well in my life. That's why I hit it so badly. And so as long as we have that judgmental perpetuation, we're going to continue to have survivors or, or victims continue to choose to stay victims because we don't create a safe culture for people to come out. So if someone... So those of us that are intelligent, we do need to start gently interrupting people and telling them, you know, I, I get that that's how you see it, but the reality is it's a much complicated mental, emotional, and traumatic process to escape. It's it's very much like Stockholm Syndrome is, I think, a wonderful example. I feel like the, I kind of had Stockholm Syndrome because you just... You are loving and trying to love and care for the person that is hurting you. And so, you know, you're held captive in this life because you're scared to leave it from judgment and you're still loving someone who's abusive to you. That is, it's not mentally okay, but why is it happening? And it's happening because of the culture around it. So I use my story to help uplift people and let them know, like, hey, you know, I, I get it. You might have you might have had to live in your car for the past month to leave someone. I, I completely get it. And housing is impossible. You've got a home for now. And trying to just give them the freedom to recreate their autonomy. Sorry about that. I went off on a tangent. That was a fantastic tangent. You can go on as many of those as you would like. Are there things that those of us that have not experienced domestic violence may say that we think are helpful, but they're really not helpful? It's going to be okay. You know, statements that are making promises of the future you don't know, like everything's going to be fine. You just leave and everything's going to be fine. You know, that that uncertainty is what always scares someone the most. So not being realistic with them about it and trying to sugarcoat things is, is not a healthy approach. And being honest, I'm really, like, I really like to say, things to <clears throat> residents that choose that might be thinking to return or might be making a choice or a decision that would be unsafe and I would just tell I'm really scared for you you're going to go to court and contest this hearing by yourself and you don't want an advocate what if he approaches you letting them know like if you leave if you leave this your partner today and you leave your dog behind are you scared for the safety of your dog a lot of times we don't think about the pets we're leaving behind that's another thing that kept me staying is my partner would use the the dog a lot to control me and he would take the dog with him so i especially if he knew i was trying to pack and leave so creating a space where a survivor or someone fleeing can bring their pet or offer to take care of the pets. Thinking of those things and being honest with them about it is the best approach. Don't sugarcoat it at all. It is, but do it in a gentle, compassionate way and making sure to never minimize what's happening in an attempt to be helpful for them. And I think a good example of the minimizing would be like you want you want this person to stay with your partner, say you're not really sure if, if they're being abused or not, well, I mean, I'm sure with time it'll get better. You know, statements like that keep someone thinking like, yeah, you know, I shouldn't leave. Well, what about the kids? You know, are you going to leave because of the kids? What, what about your children? So when someone is going to leave, support them in that option. Give them all the options. Weigh them with them and be honest with them. And try hardest not to 
judge and be supportive, even if they don't leave. I think that's the real the real problem comes in comes in is what we say to people when they don't leave. That judgment comes out, and it's hard. It's hard because you want so bad for this person to be free and to want to be free of this abuse, but they're just not ready. And and being able to understand that, not be okay with it, but understand it. One of the goals of the podcast or the show is to dispel rumors. One of the rumors that I have heard before is that you can tell if someone is going to be abusive. Do you think that there are signs that someone can look for to see that that person is likely going to be abusive? There's always signs, but the thing about love is that horrible thing that happens to your brain with endorphins, (laughs) and and you're just, you're literally high. You're literally high on endorphins when you fall in love, and so you're just seeing all the beautiful, perfect things about this person, just like within your relationship. You know, you're dating this wonderful, wonderful guy, right? You're falling in love, and then they start to have flatulence issues in front of you, right? And you're like, what the happened? So, you know, I compared a lot to that. It's just you're not always going to be looking for it when you're falling in love with someone. You want to be open. You want to be ready to just receive the love that they want to share. What happens is over time, that comfort builds. And you start to see, like, ooh, he doesn't cope so well in this way. He gets really angry waiting in line. I started noticing that my partner would blow up at anyone. It didn't matter. Like, an old woman, like, he would blow up at her and just start yelling. And so I used that in my dating life when I started dating, um, again, after I left. And I would look for, I would definitely how they interacted with people in public that was my huge thing so I learned from it unfortunately I didn't notice it because I was in love and so was it being naive too I yes yes so is there signs sure do you always look for them no especially you know as a as a young young woman you're not always looking for them so Perhaps maybe it's important for us at young ages to be taught about what relationships look like, right? We look to we look to modeling from our parents what relationships should look like. And I feel like my dad was a very good role model. Now, my parents would argue, but he was always very loving and honest and took care, took care of us. So why did I pick someone that was not kind to me and was abusive? You know, he was a good friend of the family. I thought because he knew our family for so long that he would grow, right? Just as I wanted to grow as a person. You think people can grow and change, and we can. It's just that we always don't. And so, like, if I were to give advice to people, it would just be to love yourself, and that's the only way you're truly going to be able to love someone else is until you love yourself wholly. You've mentioned a couple of times that your partner was a friend of the family. Were there things that you lost or people that you lost when you ended that relationship? No, no. Um, Because of the substitutes on his part and on my part, pretty much became estranged from all friends. My family is still close to him. They talk to him, but they do keep him a little bit distant. But he grew up with our family and my brothers, so he'll always be kind of family-esque to my brothers and a good friend and my mom will still always care about him but because of his health and choices we do they do keep him at a distance but I don't feel like I really lost anyone 
that I should have out of my life. I'm still very close to my family, and they know the struggle I went through. And during that time, they said they saw things, but I'm a very outgoing, strong personality, so... When I was around family, it, you know, nothing he wouldn't do. He wouldn't be abusive. Towards the end, though, they started noticing things. And so seven years in, with me being a heavy prescription drug user and my partner as well, and when I was getting ready to leave, that's when they started noticing things. Even they didn't notice, but they did have concerns around his, they knew he had a problem with substance use in the past but they didn't know the severity. And they thought he could change, that he would change for a good person. But the reality is no one changes only for themselves. And that's the way it has. Christina, I think just from the hour I've been able to spend with you, I can see that you're a person with very strong willpower. What would be something that you would want to say to others who are listening that might find themselves in a domestic violence and maybe don't feel like they're strong enough to be in that situation or to get out of that situation? You know, if if that's where you want to be and you're put in, I understand, just find a way to love yourself when you're ready to leave. Don't be afraid to reach out for help in any way, shape, or form because it's worth it. I think the journey to help is the scariest. Once you have the help, it's easier to navigate through. It's just reaching out and taking the help and searching for it is the hardest part or choosing to have the help and put hope in strangers to be there for you. I think that's the always the biggest struggle in the trust in giving out information to help yourself. Because I know that's what scared me. Is I didn't want to tell my story. I didn't want to give out the information. And I feel like this, especially for domestic violence services today, there's more of an arena and room for people to not have to give everything about themselves, but just enough information to see if they're appropriate for services and to get you in. So if you're scared about giving the information, reach out, try it, find the right place, ask questions first. Or even if it's just calling a crisis line to talk with somebody once a week in safety plan. Anything you do to make yourself safe, even if you don't want to leave, is, can create a better life for yourself because that's what we all deserve. And I'm a firm believer on our First Amendment rights and in the pursuit of happiness. We have a right to pursue that. And so that's why we have services like our, our home, so that individuals can find their freedom again. And that's what I want to do for anyone. So, And I am very proud to be a part of the Greater Portland Area Domestic Violence Services because I do feel like we've, we've got an emotional intelligence about us to understand anyone who comes our way and to try and work with them through their struggle. You've mentioned many great resources throughout this interview. What would be some of your top resources I am very partial to crisis hotlines, being that's where my background started. So Call to Safety in the greater Portland area is a beautiful 24-hour crisis hotline that has all area shelters, and I was very grateful to be able to work for them before I went full-time at Monica's house. And they have such an emotional intelligence and activism uh component to their agency that really made it wonderful to be a part of. So I encourage all survivors or anyone interested in getting involved in helping survivors to contact Call to Safety. Their number is 503-235-5333. And I would just like to also say the Domestic Violence Resource Center, too, in, in Washington County, where we have advocacy 
We have services for a safe home environment for survivors looking to find a safe place, as well as counseling services. And that's just a small description of what we provide as an agency. And in addition, I also would like to some of the other DV agencies in the Multnomah County area, such as Volunteers of America, Bradley Angle, all wonderful, wonderful programs. Raphael House has been a real mentor to me as well in creating a uh, home environment surrounding less rule-driven approaches, shelters as well. We together try and work together so that we can help the best. It's really great to be a part of this with them, to meet these these women, these individuals that work in the program, the advocates. It's incredible the work that we do and the passion that everyone has and brings. And it's just, it's exciting to be a part of it, but, and to work together with all of them as a community. Is there a national crisis hotline for people who are spread throughout the U.S.? There is the domestic violence crisis hotline, and I don't have the number on top of my head, but a lot of times you just do a Google, but 211 is another wonderful program, and it has all the information and resources that you could possibly want as well, and they have all local DV resources. You can call 211 from your cell phone anywhere, and they will link you to resources immediately in your area. So that's a wonderful, wonderful program as well that I've had the pleasure of working for at one point in my life too. And so if you're someone who has no resources whatsoever, remember those three numbers, 211, and that, that is definitely a great resource. Like I said, I feel very privileged to have been able to share this hour with you and to hear your story, I think our listeners will probably feel that way as well. Now I want to end with the one question I end every podcast with. What are three things that you wish we knew? So these would be your three golden nuggets if somebody didn't listen to the rest of the interview, the three things that you hope we will all understand about domestic violence or your story. I think if you... And this is coming from my perspective. If you want to have a healthy, happy relationship and avoid intimate partner violence, learn how to love yourself before loving anyone else. I think that's a huge nugget I'd like to deliver of my my wisdom and my experience. Two, ask for help. Take feedback. When you are open and willing to help yourself and absorb the other fruitful, knowledgeable nuggets that other people have, you feel grow. And I think the third is seek a higher emotional intelligence for yourself. A lot of us get complacent with the struggles of life. I too struggle with just absorbing my identity completely into my work. And we need to find, get back to that emotional intelligence within ourselves and so that would be my three nuggets all revolving around personal growth and survival because if you are willing if you are open and if you have the passion for knowledge you will have such a beautiful life and it doesn't it doesn't matter where you live it doesn't matter how you live if you're caring for yourself and loving for yourself you will have a good life that's what my experience has given me uh, a passion for loving myself and that has brought me many wonderful wonderful opportunities in my life because of that because I focused on me and growing whereas 
this is a lonely world. We want someone to walk it with. And when we focus so much on finding that someone, we're not focusing on finding ourselves. And so learn to love yourself and you will find the love of your life. That seems like a great place to end. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you also for all of the work you do to help others to find their freedom and find their voice again. I really thank you too. It's been wonderful sharing my story and I look forward to hearing it. A huge thank you to Christina for sharing her story, for sharing details that are very personal to her in the hope that it will help all of us to learn and grow. There's a number of things that she mentioned that I think we should highlight. One being this idea she mentioned of people using social media to stalk and continue abusing someone. I think it's a good reminder to all of us, be aware of what you're sharing on social media. Just because somebody puts up there something about their kids being missing, know your source. If it's coming from a police source, likely those children actually are missing and in a dangerous situation. But if it's somebody on their own, it could be one of those situations like she shared where an abuser is using that in an attempt to locate the people they're abusing. So on your social media and in every aspect of your life, be aware of the source and know where it's coming from. Christine also mentioned the importance of not necessarily putting yourself in harm's way or getting into a dangerous situation because you think you're helping. If you see a domestic dispute or another dispute unfolding, take down license plate numbers, try to take a photo, take a video, call the police, report it to the police, get someone involved who is trained to deal with that so you're not putting yourself in harm's way trying to help someone else. She also mentioned the importance of being supportive of those around you. Maybe someone's in a domestic violence situation and they're not ready to leave. We can't force somebody to change just because we want them to. So remembering to be supportive and not to judge and to just meet people where they're at. Christina mentioned something that Melissa had actually also mentioned in the episode a few weeks ago about losing your house to natural disaster. And it's that phrase that I think we all use a lot it's going to be okay. Maybe that's something that we all need to look at taking out of our vocabulary and instead of trying to minimize someone else's struggles, just being there to listen and support them in whatever they're going through, whether it's natural disaster or recovery or domestic violence or any of those things. That really struck me when she said almost the identical phrase to what Melissa had said weeks ago in a completely different situation. She also mentioned lots of resources, and I think that's something all of us can do. We can call 211 whether we know someone in that situation or not and gather the resources. So if a situation comes up and we need them, we already have the information in our minds at our fingertips. The last thing that I really want to highlight that Christina said was one of her favorite phrases was hurt people hurt people. So I think all of us carry our baggage, our trauma, our experiences with us. If you are a person who feels like you are a hurt person, I definitely encourage you to seek help, seek assistance, seek counseling. There's resources through 211 for those sorts of things as well. Because if we can all do a better job of looking after ourselves and making sure we are being the best person we can be, we can then help others to do the same. I hope that this episode has brought some awareness to you about issues surrounding domestic violence. In the coming weeks, we will have new episodes on different topics, maybe some of them a bit lighter. The next couple of weeks, we're going to try to highlight different political perspectives, as that is an area in our society that often tends to divide us, and it's always helpful to try to understand what the other side thinks in a non-soundbite combative way. 
So I hope you will tune in for that. Send over questions. We're specifically going to be having someone who holds conservative perspectives and someone who holds more liberal perspectives. So any questions you have for those identities, please send over. As always, I love to get your feedback on anything. You can email wishyouknewpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Let us know you're listening. Let us know what you appreciate or what you're enjoying. As always, remember, people are people are people. Keep listening. Keep learning. Keep loving. Have a great week, everyone.